Blog Talk Radio. Hello, it's Janet. Hello. Well, good afternoon. How are you this afternoon in my time, I should say? Well, I'm I'm really on your time because I'm also in the States right now. Oh, you're so in the States. It's also, for me, it's afternoon. I'm in Philadelphia right now. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I was about mm-hmm. to say, uh, how are things in Rome? Because I had heard that you might be calling from Rome, but we are in the same country at least. That's good. But it's even more complicated because I just landed from Budapest coming yesterday. And the day before yesterday, I've just been shaking the Pope's hand because he has come for a visit to Hungary. So I've been in several different countries in the last days, but now I'm most definitely in the States for a week. Oh, that's and wonderful. That's- well, you are a very, obviously, very busy man here, and uh, I'm sure a part of your busyness is uh, has to do with your new book. Uh, I understand that it is selling quite well, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. So congratulations on the release and the success of your new book. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an exciting thing for me to write a book about my family, but I, 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 I feel it's also fun because it's it is. It, it, it. I feel it's relevant to our times. It's not just a family history over the last several hundred years, but I'm, I'm trying to to bring across a few ideas that could be relevant to people nowadays, and that I think makes the book even more fun. And so, um, brings me to my very first question here: Why did you decide to write the book, or was this an idea that you had had for several years, or what? Not at all. I, I have a. Um, a friend here in the States and this friend basically invited me to to write a book on my family for Sophia Press here in the States. And uh, my first reaction was, why another book on the Habsburgs? There are very good books on my family. And um, also, you know, I've written books. I've written novels. I've written books on, on historic subjects, on architecture subjects. So <clears throat> I saw why a book on the Habsburgs. And... Um, and then I said, um, you know, I, I gave a talk in Boston last year. I went to a club, and um, and they, the host told me, give us a talk about the Habsburgs. But he told me, attention, not all of the people in the room are Catholic. So don't just talk about the Habsburgs and the Catholic faith, what you usually do, because, you know, I'm, I'm a Catholic. So but it, and then I said, sat down and said, okay, what are the other elements that make out Habsburg history, Habsburg identity, Habsburg principles. And I sat down and I began making lists and I began going through books and I began asking old uncles, what are the central principles of our family? And then I came up with a list. In the talk, it was 10. I condensed it down to seven for the book. And so I had my, I had my, my, my system. And then while I, while I <clears throat> while I read the book, I discovered a few things that really surprised me. One of them is that many of those seven principles that I propose in my book have really somehow gone missing nowadays. They're a bit a bit gone from reality, and I asked myself why. And the other thing that surprised me was how surprisingly close some of the Habsburg ideas and the principles of the United States are, which you wouldn't expect because you would think Habsburg, that's, you know, rulers and despots of the past, and, and the United States are the republic, um, the, the democracy, but they are surprisingly close, as I found out, in many ideas. So I think 
that this book um, will work and will resonate in the United States. And so let's talk about some of those principles that you said that are surprisingly that have been overlooked. What, what are a couple of them? Well, I would begin with one of the central ideas that I propose in the third chapter of my seven principles, and it's the principle of subsidiarity. I know that's a, that's a fancy word, as you would say. Yes. But it, it is one of the core elements of what constituted Habsburg um, idea of, of, of reign, of rule, and of how people live together. Um, it is already expressed by Emperor Charles V in the 16th century, not with the word subsidiarity. Um, but what it basically says is that you have to respect the lower level. You have to respect, for instance, if you have an empire with several nations within that, you have to respect the single nations and their languages and their customs, and their rights, and their institutions. And if you don't do that, then you're in trouble. And the same goes, of course, for the United States that are really United States. We sometimes forget that, that these are different states that have united. And, um, and there are many situations where you feel that a single state can still make decisions that sometimes can differ from the federal level because America is built from grassroots up from the bottom up, um, from the family, the township, the, the county, the state. And that is a, a very strong principle in the Habsburg history. Whenever Habsburg rulers went against this principle, things went bad in the empire. And whenever they respected the single nations, the single countries, the single entities on a lower level, it went well. So subsidiarity is most definitely a principle where I feel that Habsburg um, law and the United States and ideas are close. Um, another thing where I think that um, the states, um, one of the ideas of my book, of course, the first big principle when you think about the, the Habsburgs um, as a family, most people, first thing that will come to their mind is, is marriage and marriage politics. Um, uh, the, the Habsburgs have been 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 doing politics since since centuries by marrying um, by marriage uniting countries. Now this is not something we do nowadays, but the, the central point of marriage and family um, is something that is far more present, far more understood, and far more lived. Also with numerous families, at least in the Catholic world here in the United States, I'm regularly meeting families with four, five, seven, eight children. And while when I in Europe with my six children um, talk to people, they think I'm crazy, totally crazy. In the States, there is a growing number of families with lots of children. And um, so the first, the first chapter of my book, uh, which in the Habsburg history talks about our, what the Habsburg did about marriage for the last um, 800 years, but with, which of course encourages people to get married to have many children, and uh, because that's the greatest gift you can give to each other as spouses and to the children too, um, that is a topic that resonated very strongly with many, many of my Catholic readers um, over the last weeks, um, the ones who read uh, beforehand. So the topic of marriage is a big one in my family, and I think in the States, family marriage is still more a thing than it is perhaps sometimes in old Europe. Um, the, the second topic... Uh, 
of the Habsburg way is is be Catholic. I mean, doesn't mean Catholic. It means live your faith um, and and live accordingly. And the Habsburgs were always, always Catholic. Whenever they were not, things went wrong. And um, while in Europe it is considered um, good taste for a politician not so uh, their um, faith affiliation, in the States it's still considered more okay if somebody is a Christian and says so. And so this is something that can be understood in the States far more than in Europe. Um, yeah. Interrupt well, me if I'm talking too much. No, no, <laughs> please. I'm enjoying. I'm, I'm learning here. Uh, <laughs> very much so. Well, well, readers who are not Catholic, maybe if they're Hindu or Judeo-Christian, will they find something relevant within the pages? Well, absolutely. Um, in the, at the beginning of the chapter on of be Catholic or, and live your faith, I I I, uh, I make an excuse to all those who are not Catholic by saying that everyone who has a faith can let this faith inspire their daily life and also their life as a politician. One of my theories is that I encourage politicians to have a religion and a faith for for several reasons. First of all, if somebody has a faith. I know by which virtues and by which principles to hold them accountable. I know which which values are really important to these people. And if somebody believes in God, especially if they're Christian, then they believe that they will one day after their death have to render accountability for what they did in their lives. A politician that that in my in my opinion believes in God, believes in a higher ethical code, and believes that one day God will ask him, what did you do as a politician? And perhaps that will keep them rather from being corrupt. Perhaps I'm naive, but I, I believe that is so. And I, I give a few examples from Habsburg family history, from a few emperors. Especially, of course, the, the strongest character is Blessed Emperor Karl, who was the, the last of the Habsburg emperors, virtually unknown outside of the Catholic world somehow. Um, he became emperor in 1916, and was emperor for a bit over one and a half years. Um, but he was a very, very impressive Christian that lived his faith very strongly in his family. And that led in the end to John Paul II beatifying him and uh, and, uh, and making him a blessed of the Catholic Christian. He will be a saint one day. And that's very encouraging to have a, 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 states, a statesman that, that stands for something, and that lived these Christian values in his everyday life and his work as an emperor. Now, I know your your family goes all the way back, I believe, to the 13th century. Is that correct? Somewhere along in there? It's a lot of dynasty. Yes. Lots of dynasty. Yes, uh, do, to your knowledge, do you know if anyone in your long, lengthy family dynasty, was there anyone that was maybe been a, an agnostic or an atheist Do you know of? <laughs> Well, um, first of all, you cannot look into the heart. Um, you will never know for sure. I would say the large majority, at least of the Habsburg rulers, uh, were uh, were Catholic. Um, I would say there are a few that you would consider to be enlightened. Joseph II was one of these enlightened rulers um, who didn't like too much devotion and piety and thought it was useless um, piffle. And uh, he wanted everybody to be a useful member of society and um, and contribute to the enlightened Austrian state. Um, you had 
one or two Habsburg emperors who in their leanings were probably more Protestant than Catholic. Um, that's Ferdinand, um, the, no, Maximilian II, Rudolf II, I think, I would say. Rudolf II said of himself that he is a damned and that he belongs to hell and things like that. So I, I suppose I, what I've heard that is he's probably, um, he had depressions and he was probably, he had a difficult psychological um, uh, composition. But but most of the, the Habsburgs really were Catholic and lived their lives and, and it, their faith informed their way of ruling and informed their entire life, informed their marriage choices and informed the way they raised their children. So that's, I think that's one of the you call it U, USP, right? Unique selling point. Yes. I would say that's a, that's a unique selling point of the Habsburgs is their Catholic faith. Well, obviously, yes. well, obviously the, the Imperial House of Habsburg had just a, a variety of personalities like any large family would. Uh, were there any family members from the past as you grew up that you were totally fascinated by, that you wish that you could have met? I mean, with the family going yes, back that absolutely. far. Who, who are some of those family um, members? As this is as this is a podcast about about uh, about filmmaking, uh, yeah. I, I I I was for many years a scriptwriter. I've written not only novels but also movie scripts and TV scripts. And um, one of my screenplays was um, and it was optioned. I received some money for it, but it was never filmed. I wrote a screenplay on the last week in the life of Empress Elizabeth of Sissy, um, the one where the Netflix series is running now. I wrote a, a, a screenplay on her last week before she was assassinated on Lake Geneva. And so this is a character when I was younger that very, very much um, fascinated me. Empress Elizabeth, beautiful, beautiful um, princess of Bavaria, married by Emperor Franz Joseph in 1854, and then one of the most beautiful women in her time, and then lived the life of a, I think unhappy woman in the cage of the of the rather severe society in the court in Vienna, and always trying to break out. Went on on trips, um, traveled through Europe, uh, wrote sad poetry in the line of Byron and Heine. She fascinated me very very strongly uh, when I when I was younger. Uh, another character in our family that has larger than life character traits and is a character that has to be, one day his life has to be filmed. Um, it's one of my favorite Habsburgs, Emperor Maximilian I, not the one that was killed in Mexico, but the one they called the last knight. And the name for the last knight was that he was um, in, in the 15th century when the time of jousting and knights and knighthood was long gone. He still practiced that and he made tournaments and he fought for knightly and chivalric values and all that. And that was sort of his romantic hobby, if you want, though. And then suddenly he uh, he got into one of the greatest and knightliest adventures that you could have in your life. Um, he didn't have to save a princess from a dragon, but nearly, because um, the story is absolutely fascinating. So when Mac when Maximilian was was young, he was he was engaged to get married to the uh, Princess Mary of Burgundy. Um, not only the most beautiful princess of Europe, but also the richest heiress of Europe to the dukedom of Burgundy, which is more or less between France and Germany in there. Now it's gone today, but it, there it was. And um, 
And uh, he was engaged to me. He had never met her. Just saw paintings of her. They were beautiful. So, and, and then her father died in a battle. And suddenly she, as a young girl, was the Duchess of Burgundy. And she was helpless because his, her courtyard intrigued against her. And the French king set his armies in motion to take Burgundy and force her to marry his 13-year-old son to get Burgundy for France. So she wrote a letter to Maximilian, her hero and champion, far away Austria, and wrote to him, come and save me with your army. Now, he had no army at that time. He had a horse, um, he had a, an armor, and he had a few friends with armors, but he had not, and he had, most of all, next to no money. But he was the son of the emperor, so he had prestige. So he got onto his horse with his friends, and he began riding down the Danube with Burgundy. And on the way, more and more, Knights and princes and bishops joined um, the Cortes until he arrived in Ghent just a few days before the French. They immediately got married, and it was one of the great love stories of the 15th century, and uh, a wonderful couple, and uh, really a lot. He was friends with Dürer and with all the great artists of his time. He wrote three autobiographies of his life, slightly pimped up, uh, where he described his life as a as a nightly adventure, incredibly funny to read. So that's the larger than life character in my family that I like very much. Well, that sounds like a Netflix uh, miniseries right there. Well, I hope it won't be a Netflix miniseries because I would like a, a series that that really makes makes him justice and <laughs> not just a fun series. Yeah, but absolutely. Well, and this is so interesting to find out that you uh, have this talent for writing and entertainment scripts and such. And that, that segues to this question. What does the Habsburg family, what do you guys think about all of these films and TV series and such about the British royals? And uh, does your family do the Habsburgs, do they welcome this type of activity or what? You want to know whether we watch The Crown? The Crown, um, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, well, I, I suppose there is no member of the Habsburg family that hasn't watched the romantic movies about Empress Elizabeth from the 60s called Sissy with Romy Schneider. Those beautiful three, beautiful, wonderful, wholesome movies about Empress Elizabeth. Um, um, we watch them. I'm pretty certain that some of my cousins watched The Crown. Uh, some of my daughters did for a while. I uh, don't know how far they got. Mm. And so, yes, you do, watch, you do watch these kind of movies from time to time. And, um, yes, um, but I, I, personally, I personally am not, am not uh, a fan of, of, um, of the film versions of British royalty. Um, I have to say that there was a series that I loved very much that was a series about um, Edward and Wally Simpson. It was called, I don't know, English BBC series from the 70s with Edward Fox as the king. And um, it was called Edward and Mrs. Simpson, I think. So, yes, from time to time, from time to time we do. But, you know, the interesting thing when you're a Habsburg is that you usually have, at least some of us, the chance to get to know the real royals, the Catholic ones, so not, not the British royal family. We don't know them that well because we don't sort of mixed and married with the Protestant part of the world. But we got to know a few of the current Catholic kings in Europe, and that gives you quite an idea how how the real life 
for a royal or a prince or so looks like nowadays. And um, yeah, that, there is a bit, there are bits about that in my book too. Out of, I guess it would be what protocol or any of the Habsburgs attending uh, the coronation of Prince Charles and Queen's Fort Camilla? I would expect that the head of our family, Carl Charles, is going to be there. Um, but I have I have no information about it. Carl was also present at the funeral of the Queen. Okay. Apropos funeral of the Queen, there is, um, you know, one chapter in my book, um, The Habsburg Way, is the last chapter. Chapter seven is about die well. It's about the Habsburgs and death. It's a, it's a colorful um, chapter that speaks about how the Habsburgs um, face death and how they, they, they arrange their funerals. And um, and when I watched the funeral of the Queen, as we all did, and we were all blown away by by the great love of this nation for her, for their Queen, people queued up for 14 hours to have 10 seconds in front of her coffin. I mean, imagine. Um, and then there was the moment uh, when the Queen was was buried, and um, and they lowered her coffin into the into the crypt. It was one of the last things you saw with the beautiful music and while they lowered the coffin into the floor, um, the, the master of ceremonies read out her titles. And I had to laugh because I compared this to the Habsburg knocking ritual. So the Habsburgs had a very similar, but then again, totally different way of ritual for bringing the coffin into the crypt that tells you everything about, about the, about their, their their frame of mind. So I've I've seen it twice because two times in the 20th century um, this 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 ritual has been used. Once when Empress Zita of Habsburg was buried, and once when Otto, our last head of family, was buried. And I was there both times, and it's very impressive. So you arrive with a coffin at the so-called Capuchina Roof, which is the crypt of the Capuchins in the center of Vienna. And the coffin arrives, and the, and, and the pallbearers, and the whole crowd of people, and the master of ceremonies knocks at the door three times. And from inside, a monk of the Capuchin order answers, who is there? And then he says, Zita, Empress of Austria, Queen of Hungary, Queen of Bohemia, Princess of Moldova, and then goes down all the titles for about half a minute. And the voice answers, we don't know her. And then they knock again, and then he says, who is there? And then they read all the achievements of the deceased emperor, all the peace treaties, all the things they did. And again, the voice from inside says, we don't know him. And then the third time it, they knock, and he says, who is there? And they say, Vita, a poor, sinful woman. And then the door opens. And that is Catholic. That is simply Catholic, because your titles won't get you to heaven. But a, a humble attitude will, and that is that's the Habsburg way. Well, I have two last questions here. You, Please, you write, you say, how to die like a royal? How, how can we, as non-royals, how how can we do that? Well, one one element of the attitude of the Habsburg towards death was, which is not something that we experience nowadays, is they knew that their death was public. The way they died and the way they were buried was being watched by their population. Um, their their subjects uh, took an example from the way they died. And you know, if a king who is or an emperor 
who is a very splendid person with lots of money and power, gives signals of deep humility in their death. This is something that can encourage normal people to also be humble in their lives and humble in their death. And uh, I, I give you one beautiful example from, from the same Maximilian that, um, that uh, with the knightly attitudes. When he died, he, he gave um, a series of testamental orders, what was to be done after his death. And that is exactly what I, what I just said. Um, he ordered, first of all, his body, his, 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 his corpse, to be shorn, his hair shorn, played and exposed like that to show to the people that the emperor is just a poor sinner. Then the second, and a painting of that was, was made and was distributed in the empire to show that the, the, the emperor is a poor sinner like some, everybody else. The second thing he did was beautiful. He had a favorite um, armor, beautiful armor as a knight. And he took that armor and he told the told um, his uh, in his testament, you have to place this armor in a church, kneeling with hands folded in front of the Blessed Sacrament for all eternity. So as a sign that you could be devout as a Catholic. And when you go to Innsbruck in Austria and you go into the side chapel of the cathedral, this armor is still standing there, kneeling there with hands folded. So that's a strong sign, you know. It's, it's a sort of sermon that the emperor gives. And the third gesture, beautiful, is his tomb. Emperor Maximilian didn't want a, a lavish, beautiful tomb with lots of statues. But he was buried in um, Wiener Neustadt, which is near Vienna. And he wanted to be buried in the stairs under the altar. So if you go to the Wiener Neustadt church where he's buried, you have the stairs leading up to the altar. And in those stairs, at the third stair, there's just the word Maximilian, written on the stair, because this is where his coffin has been put in. He wanted to be under the altar where Mass was being said, just as a humble um, dead that, that the priest would step across when he goes up. Again, a sign of humility. I, I think that's beautiful. Now, I don't mean that most of us have to do similar things. But what, what you should do, and what I think is one of the points of my book, death is an important moment. You should face death, think about death, Prepare for death. Prepare. You're, you're inside for death, but also you're outside. And that's something that has to state very clearly. And finally, what do you hope that readers can walk away with as far as looking and reading about the successes and the failures of the Habsburg family dynasty that might pertain today? What do you hope they can walk away with? I think that um, one of the, I hope, one of the effects of the book this is not something that only is important for you if you're a royal or a part of an imperial family or an aristocrat. I think that the points that I, I try to make a, a, to, to encourage people for is something that everybody can put into their everyday life. So I believe that if you, if you read about how the Habsburg did certain things and say, well, some of them would be really, some of that would be really good to have in our world today. And I could try to do this in my life and that in my life. This is something I hope. And, but I don't only mean this book for every single one of us, you know, to be inspired for our daily life to change a few things. But I also mean for our society. Some of the things in my book would do our society good, I think. I, I honestly feel that. And the third point is uh, mostly the political world. I, I feel that I try to give a few examples of, 
statesmen who really try to live for their people, to to sacrifice their time, their energy, and everything to be good, to be good leaders, to be just leaders, to to stand for the subject, and to to be good, to make good laws. All of that could be an inspiration to politicians today who read this book, perhaps, and say there there could be more to what I do for for my country. So I think if a few of those points um, inspire people, then I would be very happy. Well, Archduke Habsburg, your book is doing quite well. I understand it is number one on several different literary charts uh, around the world. And again, the title is The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. Thank you so much for chatting with me and giving me some insight as to just a glimpse of about the long dynasties uh, of the Habsburg family. Thank you so much for chatting with me and this book as well. And thank you very much for having me on your show. All the best for your podcast in the future, and hopefully we'll meet one day. I would love that. You know, I've never been to your beautiful country. I've been to Stad, Switzerland. I went to, to the Montreux, and I would take the train up to Stad every, almost every morning just to have breakfast at this little restaurant. And that's about uh, as close as I've gotten. But I would love to come to Austria. Oh, my God, I would love that so much. But if you ever go to Switzerland to go, you have to go and visit Castle Habsburg, where okay. our family comes from, uh, with a very special detail that if you go into the cafeteria of the castle – you cannot only eat hamburgers, but also Habsburgers. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've got to do that. And I'm going to tell them I was recommended by a member of the royal family himself to try the Habsburger. <laughs> yes, yes. If you go there, tell them that Edward Habsburg sent you. And if you ever come to Rome, do reach out and we can meet there. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.